Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garda. It's Thursday, May 6th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Moderna and Pfizer are poised to make a combined $45 billion from their COVID-19 vaccines this year. We'll discuss what that massive infusion of cash means for both companies. The U.S. is lending its support to a controversial proposal that would waive COVID-19 vaccine patents during the pandemic. We talked to Thomas Boyke of the Council on Foreign Relations about what that means and doesn't mean for the global vaccination effort. And finally, there's a little-known biotech company recruiting patients to Mexico with the promise of receiving an anti-aging gene therapy in an unregulated clinical trial. Stats' Megan Molteni joins us to share the ethically questionable details. But first, a word about Stat Plus. Enjoying the read out loud? Subscribe to Stat Plus to get stories like these. Stat Plus delivers daily market-moving coverage from across biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. Subscribe today to get access to breaking news, exclusives, and analysis from our award-winning team. Subscribe to Stat Plus today at statnews.com slash subscribe. And as a special thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener, enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. This week, Moderna and Pfizer collectively forecast 2021 sales from their two COVID-19 vaccines of more than $45 billion, making these two drugs the biggest of all time. That breaks out to $26 billion for Pfizer and BioNTech's vaccine and $19.2 billion for Moderna's. It's not surprising, of course, given we're in a pandemic and the market for these vaccines is everyone on Earth. But as these companies reported their financial results this week, a major question emerged. What are they going to do with all that cash? Yeah, the future of messenger RNA as a vaccine and drug technology is also starting to take shape. The nearest term next application may be a battle in flu vaccines, which both Pfizer and Moderna are working on. And there's hope that the platform's success in COVID will translate. Pfizer R&D chief Michael Dolston told Wall Street analysts he hopes mRNA vaccines will provide better protection against the seasonal flu than current vaccines, both because the mRNA technology works so well, at least for COVID, and because the speed of the platform could enable better matching to currently circulating strains, which of course is a main issue with the current vaccines, many of which are still grown in chicken eggs. Pfizer also told analysts that it plans to use the cash from the COVID vaccine to bring in more drugs in later stages of clinical trials. Yeah, and I guess this is a big question. I mean, you take out the $26 billion that Pfizer is going to make from, from the COVID vaccine this year. And of course, we should note it's going to split that with BioNTech, uh, and that's revenue, not profit. But it's still a whole lot of money for Pfizer. But Wall Street does not like this stock. Um, and I've been hearing from folks it's really because people seem unexcited about the rest of the company's pipeline. And they seem to have a little bit of a setback in Duchenne muscular dystrophy this quarter. Adam, do you want to go over that? Yeah, Meg. So, you know, they have this gene therapy for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. It's in phase three. And and what was revealed uh, this week on their earnings call was that they actually haven't in, uh, enrolled any patients from the United States yet in that study. They they've, have enrolled uh, patients outside the country, but not here. And that's because they're kind of having an issue with a potency assay. So basically, it's part of the manufacturing process for this uh, gene therapy that they, uh, they need to get to more information to the FDA. And that's taking longer than expected. So it's been a little bit of a setback. There. I guess I'd just be curious on you guys' takes in general about whether it's a fair um, approach to Pfizer to say, oh, they got lucky with BioNTech and the COVID vaccine. I mean, doesn't this success prove Pfizer's 
power as a drug developer in some ways? Or, or do you really think that like it doesn't necessarily translate into other areas? Well, I think they deserve credit, obviously, for the foresight in partnering with BioNTech in the first place and the expression of faith in mRNA, which obviously ended up um, being prescient. And then, of course, the the stuff that we don't spend that much time talking about, but like the blocking and tackling of running these massive clinical trials and doing production and et cetera, um, that has allowed the vaccine to proliferate around the world is, is a credit to Pfizer. But you can see how if I'm a sort of what have you done for me lately Wall Street analyst, I would look at it as, you know, lightning in a bottle in effect. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's like a repeatable aspect of their business. There are a lot of questions about um, just how long the profitability of these vaccines will last, whether because of the length of the pandemic, um, competition from other vaccines, or a thousand other things. So I can kind of see where it's like, congratulations, now what? Yeah, I think particularly with Pfizer, I think that investors kind of silo off the mRNA stuff. You know, it's such a huge company that that part of it sort of matters a little bit less to the overall picture, where obviously with a company like Moderna, where mRNA is everything, um, you know, it, it gets a lot, you know, it, it's a lot more, there's a lot more attention paid to it. And speaking of Moderna, apparently the future over there is digital. On the earnings call this week, CEO Stefan Bonsell said AI will become part of our DNA. Yeah, like cue a thousand <laughs> conspiracy theories from Stefan's uh, statement. Like, I mean, with all the stuff going on, like someone needs to tell him to stop equating vaccines to digital software and implantable chips. And, you know, it's just it's just not helpful. Yeah. But in reality, what the company actually meant by AI will become part of our DNA is that they're investing a lot in um, digital technologies. They say they're going to spend $250 million of their now more than $8 billion in cash um, in digital investments. And they basically put up this slide during the call where they showed this circle uh, connecting, you know, trials and experiments lead to more data, which leads to better algorithms, which leads to better mRNA medicines. Rinse and repeat, essentially, uh, is the message from Moderna in terms of how they're building out this digital technology. And they really compared it to the early days of computing um, in the way it's going to change business, at least in their view. And I guess just as importantly, uh, the company is also ramping up Uh, manufacturing capacity in a major way, saying that it's going to build Moderna to have 10 times more impact on the world. It's interesting, you know, the the sort of sliding doors between Pfizer and Moderna and the way people are perceiving their incredible success with the COVID-19 vaccine, because I think the perception is that it actually does say more about Moderna's future than it does about Pfizer, because mRNA is truly the core of their business. But it's kind of interesting that, you know, looking through the pipeline updates that Moderna provided this week, they have this fleet of vaccines and obviously these incredible um, financial projections for the revenues from the COVID-19 vaccine. But if you scroll all the way down to their mRNA drugs, I think they enrolled the first patient in a clinical trial for one rare disease mRNA, and then the others are in various preclinical Um, stages of development. If you went back in time five years and said in 2021, Moderna will have just enrolled its first patient in an mRNA drug trial, you would think, oh, wow. So their plans really didn't pan out the way that they wanted. Um, And, you know, fair enough, they've had this incredible success in vaccines. But a major pillar of their pitch years ago was that mRNA was going to be this revolutionary therapeutic. And I think they've been running in place a bit um, in that department. And yet, obviously, Um, you can't argue with $19.2 billion. So it's just an interesting place for the company to find itself in in 2021. 
The U.S. is getting behind the idea of waiving patents for COVID-19 vaccines, which, depending on whom you ask, is either a massive victory for global health or a short-sighted idea that threatens the future of medicine. The news is that the Biden administration is lending its support to a proposal asking the World Trade Organization to temporarily suspend intellectual property tied to COVID-19 vaccines. That would allow countries around the world to grant compulsory licenses, essentially making it legal for third-party manufacturers to make doses of other companies' vaccines. It's a reversal of the U.S.'s previous position on the idea, but it's by no means a guarantee that the waiver will take effect. Powerful countries in Europe and Asia were opposed to it, too, and it's unclear whether the U.S.'s change of heart will have any effect on their position. Joining us to discuss what the proposed waiver might actually mean is Thomas Boyke, director of the Global Health Program at the Council on Foreign Relations. Thomas, thanks for joining us. My great pleasure. Thanks for having me. There have been some strong and sweeping reactions to this news in the hours since it broke, both from advocates hailing it as sea change in global policy and from pharmaceutical executives calling it a dangerous overreach. So how meaningful is the U.S.'s pivot on this issue? By itself, it may not be that meaningful. Um, the reason being is that ultimately there's a long road that will need to occur for this waiver to get uh, put into force. The last uh, WTO waiver that was done in 2003 took eight months uh, to negotiate and resulted in an outcome so complicated that the procedure, which in that case was around uh, making uh, pharmaceuticals without permission of the patent holder and sending them abroad, uh, it's only been used once, that procedure. So it could really be um, some time. Uh, the second reason is that um, ultimately IP is just one part of the issues around scaling up manufacturing. Uh, so while it may help alt ultimately with those barriers, if, if and when it gets into force, you'll still need to address all the other concerns that hinder the scale up of vaccines globally. So you mentioned this was used before, uh, once previously. What was it used for? So it was used in 2003. And it was used because uh, under the WTO agreements, there's an ability for a government um, recognition of that government should be able to license a patented medicine in a crisis without permission of the company that holds that patent. The challenge you had in the midst of the HIV crisis is there were only a handful of nations that actually could manufacture those drugs, although more than we have for vaccines. So that ability to issue a compulsory license wasn't that useful if you were a nation that didn't have a pharmaceutical manufacturer. So they established this waiver so that a different country, let's say Canada, could issue a compulsory license to make a vaccine, not a vaccine, I'm sorry, a drug for export to, let's say, Rwanda that was undergoing an HIV crisis. So the whole idea behind these waivers, at least in this instance, is to increase global production of COVID-19 vaccines to deal with rising case counts in the global south. In your opinion, to what extent would this proposed waiver actually help with that? So if it is a statement of intent, and it's meant to be just one additional thing that the United States and other partner governments do to scale up global manufacturing, it could be uh, significant. The reason why is there uh, was an earlier WTO action in 2001, a declaration on public health. And that didn't create any new authorities for countries. It simply recognized that the trading system had to work 
to address health needs for all its WTO members. And they had the ability to exercise the flexibilities that already existed in that agreement. That provision was part of a broader suite of things governments did to scale up access to HIV. So we started the Global Fund to fight AIDS, TB, and malaria right around the same time. The PEPFAR program. Uh, There was a lot of investment in scaling up manufacturing. Uh, Companies which had been stung by the public relations nightmare around fighting over prices for patented medicines for HIV, negotiated discounts and charged rock bottom prices. In that suite of things, this WTO declaration was useful because it recognized that the trading system has to work for everyone. If this waiver does something like that, where it helps focus the mind of leaders on this problem, it could be it, it could it could help. If it is the only thing we do to ramp up global manufacturing, it is not likely to be particularly useful. So what you are describing is a system that it seems like in order to work, would need cooperation from the pharmaceutical companies currently making COVID-19 vaccines in terms of uh, tech transfer, know-how, maybe even access to raw materials uh, supply. You know, that's something we've been hearing from the companies this week, that the bottleneck is the supply of raw materials. We heard from Stefan Bunsell, the Moderna CEO, on their earnings call Thursday morning. He's not losing any sleep over this uh, waiving of patent rights because nobody knows how to make mRNA in the world. World, and it sure doesn't sound like the companies are lining up to try to help folks learn how to do it. Instead, they're saying the best way to get vaccines to everyone is to let us make them. Um, do you think that there could be a suite of solutions that could happen quickly enough to really help during this pandemic? Is that just a realistic thing to expect, given just the, the situation in the world with the limited capacity around mRNA or, or perhaps other vaccine technologies, too? Yeah. So I'll say a couple of things. First of all, you're right that there are lots of bottlenecks that are hindering global production of vaccine. One thing I would say that gives confidence that we can do a more robust global effort to build out manufacturing is that the U.S. has just demonstrated through its Operation Warp Speed effort that when you give policy support and financing, you coordinate the supply chains needed to support the manufacturing um, Uh, That needs to occur. You subsidize all along the supply chain. Uh, You monitor that process. We are able to scale up uh, more rapidly than anybody had thought prior to this crisis. We could do the same globally, albeit on drugs. We did something similar around HIV, where we stood up global manufacturing of antiretroviral drugs. But you're right that it's going to take some time, and we're getting awfully late into this vaccine rollout, five months, um, and we are still not seeing any effort in that regard. And the one last thing I'll say here is it is unfortunate that on the same day the Biden administration indicated support for the waiver was the uh, happening at the same time the G7 nations, foreign policy advisors were meeting to talk about the pandemic. And that meeting, which includes most of the world's leading vaccine manufacturers, yielded nothing concrete. Instead, the world's attention was focused on this vaccine waiver, and that's a shame because ultimately it needs to help catalyze action, not distract from all the activities that need to occur. 
So, Tom, you know, we've heard from the biotech and pharma industry and their supporters about this issue, you know, and they've obviously been pro- protesting, you know, vigorously. And, you know, they, they say that intellectual property is, you know, is the bedrock of American capitalism and that if you start waiving IP, even for COVID vaccines, that this is a slippery slope and that, you know, eventually more IP will be waived uh, and that will hinder or prevent them from developing, inventing new new medicines. How seriously do you take those those complaints? So I think it's a serious concern uh, to to have. Ultimately, you know, the industry deserves a lot of credit. The previous record for developing a novel vaccine was four years. These vaccines were developed in 10 months, and they're among the world's best vaccines that we've ever made. That said, we can't persist in an environment where just nine countries are administering three out of every four doses of COVID vaccines globally. The international system simply will not support it. So in my view, you have the option of doing something like a waiver or some other measure to recognize the concern and start to scale up global manufacturing, or the system breaks Because what you can't have is multiple Indias happening at the same time where health systems are collapsing, people are dying in significant numbers, and people are pointing to the need to maintain patents for future innovation. It's just not going to hold up. We, We need to respond to these concerns. They're genuine. They're serious. And while the patent waiver on its own may not be uh, the, the right solution. The, the concern is real and we need to respond to it. So kind of on the other side of that conversation, we've seen some global health advocates who seem to view this as perhaps somewhat symbolic, but a meaningful step toward challenging the drug industry's power around the world. Like if we can do this for COVID-19 vaccines, perhaps also cancer medicines or other really essential drugs that are not available in every country in the world. Do you think that's accurate? Do you think there's kind of an accelerationism that, that those people should be heartened by by this? I think that's an obvious uh, motivation for some of the entities supporting the waiver. The waiver, as proposed, is incredibly broad. Um, It applies not just to vaccines, it applies to therapeutics, it applies to diagnostics, and it applies for however long it would take for the majority of the world's population to get immunity from the coronavirus. With the emergence of, of variants, that may never happen. It certainly may not happen soon. And being that broadly cast, it applies to a huge range of medical technologies that might be relevant for the treatment or prevention of coronavirus, because of course you have high-risk individuals and all the conditions. I am of the view that, you know, particularly in a crisis and a pandemic, I'm, I'm a practical person. We need to focus on what needs to be done to scale up manufacturing to address these particular needs. I think if you're asking governments and a industry to support a transformation to the broader system, this is not going to result in, in quick action in addressing this particular pandemic. Well, speaking of timing, you know, we mentioned this remains just a proposal before the WTO. So when will the issue come up for negotiation and how do you think that process will play out? So it's meant to come up again for negotiation in June. Um, I think the U.S. has indicated that it's supportive of the idea of a waiver. It did not indicate that it was supportive of the waiver proposed by India and South Africa and other countries that I mentioned is quite broad. 
the the statement from the USTR uh, indicates that the U.S. is supportive of a waiver of for COVID uh, nineteen vaccines. Uh, again, not those broader classifications. She also counseled that this is a complex issue. And uh, the WTO is a consensus-driven organization, and it's going to take some time to negotiate. We also don't know how the other uh, countries that have opposed uh, the waiver will respond. We did get a statement today from the European Commission that indicated that they are open to the conversation, but that the priority should be focused on other trade barriers to scaling out vaccines, in particular, uh, supply chain disruptions and export bans. Uh, That doesn't suggest the fact that the U.S. isn't endorsing the position that developing countries or low-middle-income countries currently want, and the EU isn't endorsing the position that the U.S. has proposed, doesn't sound like this is going to be resolved uh, all that quickly. So it really may take months Again, in 2003, the last waiver we had took eight months to be resolved. So, Tom, before we uh, had you on uh, today, you know, we were talking about the business of uh, the COVID vaccine launches. You know, we noted that you know this week Pfizer said that it was going to make 26 billion dollars this year from its COVID vaccine. That that's sales, and and Moderna, I think the the figure, the sales figure was like 19 billion dollars. That's just a ton of money that they're making from those COVID vaccines. What do you think about the optics of that in relation to this whole, you know, discussion, argument, debate about, you know, waivers and the need to increase supply in the Southern Hemisphere? The optics are horrible. You know, look, the system is designed so that the financial interests of the companies spur them to invent the things the public needs. And in that sense, the system is working as is designed. But in an environment where you have tremendous scarcity, and we are in a once in a century pandemic, uh, Pfizer, at least with regard to the European Commission, reportedly has raised its vaccine prices, um, despite uh, the profits that they're expecting uh, this year. Now, some of that is, of course, probably driven by scarcity and increased demand, and, and ultimately I get it. But uh, in an environment where there's such limited supplies, we're seeing what's happening in South America and in India and the rest of South Asia. The optics of reporting this level of prices and raising your prices um, is just terrible. Thomas, thanks for joining us. My great pleasure. Thanks for having me. Megan Moltenny joined STAT recently to cover science, and she wrote one hell of a crazy story this week that we just had to talk about on the podcast. The jaw-dropping story reports on the ethically questionable activities of a little-known biotech company from Seattle that recruited patients suffering from dementia for an unregulated clinical trial conducted in Mexico. So the CEO of that company claimed that once in Mexico, those patients were injected with an anti-aging gene therapy promoted to be a one-time, life-extending cure for Alzheimer's disease, but without the scientific and ethical guardrails that typically protect patients participating in clinical research. And Megan is here to tell us more about that. Megan, welcome to The Read Out Loud. Hey, thanks for having me. So Megan, let's start with the biotech company developing uh, this anti-aging gene therapy. Tell us about BioViva and its CEO, Elizabeth Parrish. So Parrish is perhaps best known for reportedly being the first person to try out telomerase gene therapy on herself. 
She founded BioViva in 2015 with the goal of bringing anti-aging treatments to the masses. But efforts to open gene therapy clinics overseas, like in places like Fiji, fell flat. So in 2017, she announced the company was pivoting to offer uh, bioinformatics services, which she has described as kind of a portal where companies who want to try out unproven anti-aging treatments on patients outside the U.S. could pool all of their data. Um, I'm not sure we've seen much evidence of this product out in the world yet. Um, But around this time, BioViva partnered with one such company called Integrated Health Systems, which bills itself kind of as a broker between patients and doctors who operate these medical tourism practices overseas. Um, And notably, the only doctor listed on its website is a radiologist named Jason Williams. Uh, Williams got into trouble with the FDA about eight years ago for giving out unproven stem cell treatments. Um, And since then, he's relocated to Mexico City, where he established a cancer immunotherapy practice. Um, and he's also the chief medical officer for BioViva. Man, it has not been a good year for radiologists going out of their lanes. Um, Scott Atlas being, of course, the other major one. Um, so, so based on your reporting, what's known about the patients who were recruited into this unregulated clinical trial and the treatment they received? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, very little. You know, I think to be clear, we were not able to independently verify that these six patients, in fact, exist. Like, we didn't actually track any of them down. Um, But what we did find were documents describing efforts on the part of BioViva um, and integrated health systems to recruit individuals to receive an experimental telomerase gene therapy. Um, So, telomerase is an enzyme that extends these caps on your chromosomes called telomeres. Uh, Telomeres function as a sort of molecular clock. They get a little bit shorter with each cell division until eventually the cells can no longer divide um, and they become senescent, which they basically become cellular (laughs) detritus that makes it harder for organs to function well. Um, But cells that express a lot of telomerase uh, can basically live forever. We see that a lot in things like stem cells and cancer cells. Um, So the recruitment materials we found indicated that integrated health systems was looking for people over the age of 50 with a diagnosis of mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease with no other health problems who are willing to travel to Mexico City and stay there for at least five days. Um, The treatment procedure was described as a one-time injection consisting of the telomerase gene packaged inside uh, an adeno-associated virus vector that had been modified to enhance delivery to neural tissue. The hypothesis that they put forth on the website is that some of the support cells in the brain, known as microglia, kind of get old and poop out, and that can lead to the buildup of toxic proteins, inflammation, all of which has been linked to Alzheimer's. So the idea is if you could use telomerase to reinvigorate those cells, maybe they'd do their jobs better. Um, But experiments in mice have produced somewhat conflicting results, and there's a concern that turning on telomerase in lots of cells could be a recipe for cancer. You know, some of the language that we found in the recruiting materials, like ask patients to promise to follow follow through with the procedure and follow up testing, which patients themselves would have to pay for. Um, And obviously, an important tenet of ethical clinical research is allowing human subjects to withdraw at any time of their own free will. Right. So kind of on that topic, you interviewed Parrish for this story, and she seems to have a decidedly libertarian view of clinical research and regulatory oversight. How did she justify this process of kind of veering so far outside the boundaries of traditional drug development? Yeah, uh, it's, I mean, it's interesting. In statements she's made to other journalists and in recorded talks, she's like expressed frustration with the FDA not classifying aging as a disease. Um, 
and that kind of essentially blocks any path to developing drugs to treat it. Um, in our conversation, she spoke about wanting the FDA to open a new regulatory route that's like even more permissive than expanded access or right to try. That would basically allow doctors to take any medicine with promising preclinical data and give it to willing patients. Um, and I think she sees this as a... Uh, a good idea because she she operates kind of under a different set of moral imperatives than traditional drug de developers. She told me, you know, we should be working at breakneck speed to get regenerative therapies into humans in whatever way possible, and that she thinks it's unethical not to do that. So I think, you know, it's just a really different mindset about, um, yeah, about the, the ethics of, of drug access. So you mentioned, you know, we don't know a lot about um, the vector for how this gene therapy is getting delivered. Is it known where BioViva and its partners are getting the materials necessary to make the gene therapy? Nope. That is another thing we don't know. So Parrish told me BioViva did not produce the gene therapy that was administered in Mexico, um, that the company doesn't have any manufacturing capacity to make clinical grade vectors. Um you know, it's not obvious the company has any real footprint at all. As far as whatever integrated health services doctors purportedly put into people in Mexico, none of the other BioVivo employees or advisors I spoke to knew where it was made or exactly what was in it. And all of our attempts to contact integrated health systems and Jason Williams were unfruitful. So it's hard to say. So what sort of reactions have you heard to the story since it uh, was published. And is there anything you've learned since then about BioViva and about Parrish particularly? Yeah, it's been it's been interesting. I mean, I've heard from a number of academics who study telomerase, um, as well as the leaders of some companies that are trying to develop telomerase-based therapies through traditional FDA routes, um, basically voicing their concern, trying to distance themselves from whatever BioViva is doing. I think there's a worry that that will undermine kind of legitimate efforts um, to look into it as a, as a therapeutic um, target. Um, you know, there's also been some, you know, some, you know, on social media and on, the, on our website, you know, some folks being, you know, seen, I think, heralding Parrish as, as, a, <laughs> as a hero for pushing forward with this. You know, they point to the fact that Alzheimer's patients really don't have good options. And so why not, um, you know, have, have the right to try something if something exists? Um, so there's, you know, it's, it's been a mix. I mean, one, one, you know, notable thing that happened just this morning is um, someone who is listed as an ethics advisor on the BioViva website, who I had reached out prior to the story, um, got in touch to say that he had, in fact, left um, the company uh, months ago because of his concerns over this relationship with integrated health systems and what they were up to and, and the lack of transparency. So, um, yeah, I think there's you know, definitely more questions to, to to answer going forward. I'm going to date myself here a little bit, but God, I remember, you know, I remember like late 90s, um, you know, writing about and covering Geron, which is a biotech company based out in in the Bay Area, which, you know, was entirely founded on the sort of this telomere, telomerase science. Um, and the company's never really been able to to move that into any kind of, you know, never get a drug approved based on telomerase or telomeres. Um, so it's kind of surprising me that this idea is still kind of kicking around. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think people like Parrish would say it's because we haven't moved fast enough to get human data that mouse models don't really do enough. Um, but I think, you know, folks who are 
doing this in a kind of serious clinical way would say that there's just still a lot of biology we don't understand. Um, you know, telomerase is just one molecular clock. <laughs> there's lots of different um, clocks that exist in cells. Um, and it's, it's you know, everything we know about how complex biology is suggests that, you know, turning on one enzyme is not going to be the end to, uh, to aging. I'm still getting over the ethical swirl of the ethics advisor having left the company because of ethical concerns, but yet still being listed as an ethical advisor of the company and not having been um, taken down that there's just, there's a lot, there's a lot to this story, Megan. Thank you so much for stopping by. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose, and our executive producer is Rick Burke. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and what you think Pfizer and Moderna should do with all of that money. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.